Well, hey, this is the second week that we've expanded this room. And uh, so if you're a second through fifth grader and you've been checked in, you have a name tag, you guys are free to go ahead and head out the back. Your teachers are waiting for you there. They'll walk with you to your classroom. And and as a reminder, parents, uh, you're going to pick those children up from the wetlands building. And if that is news to you, uh, feel free to ask one of us. Okay, we'll make sure uh, you know where you're headed. Um, But while they dismiss, why, why don't I go to the Lord in prayer together? So why don't you pray with me? I'm going to read from Psalm 73, um, just a, a beautiful psalm, and really in a light of what we just sang about and what our text is about today. The psalmist says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart will fail But God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion forever. Father, I pray for our church. I pray for the people that are here this morning that we would be able to say that with integrity and with authenticity that that we desire you above everything else. The reality is, Father, that our flesh will fail. Our hearts will fail. But afterward, you're going to receive us to glory. And I pray, though, that you would start putting a little bit of eternity into our hearts now. Help us to cultivate this longing, this living for eternity so that it alters the way that we live our lives. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning. Man, that opened up a lot of room in here. That was a lot of second through fifth graders. Um, But uh, we do have a first service, just want to let you know, y'all are packing out this one, Um, I get it, you wanted to sleep a little bit so you could watch um, Taylor Swift later this afternoon, I get it, okay, I get it. Um, Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians, turn with me to the book of Philippians. Um, We're going to finally close out the passage that we've been camped out in over the last several weeks. Uh, If you're new with us, maybe you're just visiting, this is week three of chewing on and digesting Paul's poetic yet radical statement, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what we've seen over the last several weeks is that what Paul means by that, what that statement summarizes is that Paul had a singular, all-consuming passion to live and die in such a way that Jesus is honored. And you'll see that in the text as we read that, that Jesus would be honored. That word honored means magnified enhanced, enlarged, glorified. We've talked about it as being reflected. Paul sought to live and to die in such a way that Jesus would be reflected, right? And this is regardless of circumstances, right? So many times we allow our circumstances to dictate how we live or how we approach certain things. This is totally regardless of circumstances. Paul says it's whether I live or whether I die, and he's writing it from a prison. So his, his quality of life, y'all, isn't very great. And he goes, I don't care. I just, I just want to honor Jesus, so that's what we have been looking at over the last several weeks. And, and um, man, one of the things I've said uh, for, for two weeks now is that if cultivated progressively, this is a lifestyle to live as Christ, to die as gain. This is a passion that can define your life too. That this life lived for Jesus and the honor of Jesus isn't just reserved, right, for some spiritual elite, special forces type of Christian, right? We, we go, great, Paul, we get it. We know who you are, you're radical, that's how you live, but I'm just an ordinary person. But, but y'all, church, church history is laced with ordinary people who lived radically abandoned for Jesus. This week, I was reminded of the missionary John G. Patton, 
And before he was a missionary, he was just a regular old dude, okay? Ordinary, just radically altered and changed by God and wanted to live his life to honor God. And, and he felt this calling to this cannibalistic tribe in the 1950s of the New Hebrides Island. And as is often the case, people in his life kept telling him how crazy he was, that you don't need to do this. You don't need to go and be a missionary. You don't need to go to these people. They kept withstanding him. Y'all, and this is often the case. If you try to live a life that is fully abandoned for Jesus, you're going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. You're going to make a lot of people convicted. And a lot of people aren't going to like that. So they're going to try to turn the volume down on your love for Jesus. So this one man approaches John G. Patton and says, you can't go to the New Hebrides Islands. They will eat you, right? That's what cannibals do. They're going to eat you. And listen to what John G. Patton said in 1958. He said, oh, Mr. Dixon, you are old and advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. And there, you will be eaten by worms. So I confess to you, if I can but live and die honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. Mic drops, right? Man, like what drives people like that? It's just this passion, this honor to live is Christ, to die is gain. And, and y'all, that's, that's radical. And for us, it's hard to conceptualize. Well, let's be honest, right? It's, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around that I can actually live in such a way that, that, that I, I breathe out this passion of honoring Jesus. And I, and I think I've finally stumbled on why it's so hard for us. Us, not you, us, Okay. I think why it's so hard for me and so many others is that we adopt a, a very similar phrase, a, a very similar phrase. Like if you don't pay attention to what I'm going to say, you're going to think I'm actually quoting Paul, but, I, but I'm not, okay? It's very similar. Here's the phrase we adopt. To live is gain and to die is Christ. You are like you quoted Paul. I didn't. Paul says, no, 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 for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What we say, for, to me, to live is gain, to die is Christ, right? And, and what I mean by that is that as Christians, we know when we die, we, we gain heaven, right? We're a whole lot of confused about what heaven is, and I'm going to address that here in a minute, but, but at least we know when I die, I get, I get heaven, I get Christ. But for us, the real gains are found in living, aren't they? Like for us, we, we, to live for us means to live more time with my family, more time in my career, more time to buy that piece of land and to build that certain house and to, to travel and to adventure and to whatever it is. You fill in the blank. That's how we live. We adopt a phrase for to me, to live is, is, is gain. Gains are here, but, but that's not what Scripture says. That's not what Paul said. That's not what drives men like John G. Patton. It's the opposite. It's to live is Christ. And dying is where the real gains are. So the question I want to address as we close out this text is, how do we flip it? How do, how do we flip it to where it needs to be so we can actually view eternity and death as our ultimate gain? That's what we're going to seek to answer. I'm going to go ahead and give you my roadmap, okay? Here's the Southern Baptist in me. I'm going to stick to my alliterations. We're going to look at Paul's dilemma. We're going to see Paul's desire, and ultimately we'll see Paul's decision, okay? Paul's dilemma, desire, and decision. But if you have your Bibles... Go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to start in the back half of that verse. It says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, 
as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And so, convinced of this, I know I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. All right, here's the word of the Lord. So let's first look at Paul's dilemma, okay? What was Paul's dilemma? We have to understand that as he's writing this from prison, Paul was in total mental, spiritual, and emotional agony here. Paul is writing this while in agony. And I know that because when you read the original language, you see this this text in the Greek. His syntax and his word order are all out of place. Like, it's actually hard to follow. You don't really know what Paul's trying to say, which is so out of character, for the eloquence and the brilliance of the Apostle Paul. Paul is a brilliant writer, and and what this reveals is that he is really wrestling. Like, Like, what's coming off this page is something that's coming from the depths of his soul. He's facing a real dilemma. And and what is it? Well, the dilemma is that he's he's contemplating his options. Paul's in prison, and he's got two options. He can be tried and found guilty and killed, so one option is death. Or he can be acquitted and and continue to live. So one option is life. Those are his options, death or life. Now listen, none of us are in prison. Wake up, we're not in prison. You're here at City Center, Richmond Hill, okay? None of us are in prison. Your life is not under any kind of imminent threat that I'm aware of, okay? Our situation isn't apples to apples to Paul's. But your options are the same as Paul's. My options are the same as Paul's. The option that I have today is, is to live or to die. Those are only two options. Last time I checked, the death rate is still what? 100%, except for that one outlier named Jesus Christ, right? Death is still undefeated. So whether our death is imminent or not doesn't really matter. Our options are still the same. We just act like it's not, right? We We don't want to think about death. We don't talk about death at all. But y'all, that is such a biblical mistake. James chapter 4 verse 14 says, you you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? Your life is a mist. It appears for a little time and then it's going to vanish. The psalmist says that understanding this actually teaches us to number our days so that we may live a life of wisdom. We may live for what actually matters. Paul was facing death. So he's sitting in prison going, what if that happens? I would advise us, even if your death isn't imminent, I would advise us to all consider the possibility. Y'all, it's, it's inevitable for all of us, and it teaches us to numbers our days. But, but Paul, once again, his dilemma was tangible, very much in his faith. And as he's, as he's reflecting on these options of life or death, we read this in verse 23. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. He, d- he illustrates this dilemma by saying, I'm hard-pressed. It's this picture of a traveler walking through a gorge, and there's a rock wall on one side, and there's a rock wall on the other side, literally so tight, he can't turn to the right, and he can't turn to the left. Right? We say it this way, we're between a rock and a hard place, or, or we're torn between the two. That's what Paul's wanting us to understand, is that he literally can't decide. Like he's stuck, he's 
paralyzed in indecisiveness because he's weighing the pros and the cons of both. He's hard-pressed between the two. Now, I, I need to be clear. Paul's not insinuating that he actually can control his own fate. Right? Are you listening? Like Paul, Paul's not trying to say, I, I actually have the power over my life or death. I can name it and I can claim it. Paul's not saying that. He, he doesn't have any of that on, that on confidence or whatever you want to call that. Paul's just imaginatively considering two very real options for him. Right? And, and just so you know, you don't have the power over life or death either. You, you just don't. We act like we do. We pretend that we do. I mean, we eat clean and you know, use oils or stuff. I don't know. We try to do everything that we can, but, but whether you like it or not, y'all, your life is, is in the hands of our God. That's where they belong. But Paul's was pretty imminent, right? And he's sitting there. He's thinking about his dilemma. He's going, what are my options? My options, I could live or I could die. And he's going, I, I'm hard-pressed. I, I don't know what to do. But here's where we need to pause and kind of reflect for a moment. I, I want us to make this personal. So let me ask you a question. Would, would what Paul's dealing with be a dilemma for you? Like, would it be a dilemma for you? Like, put yourself in Paul's position, okay? Say a persecutor has you on the ropes. Your death is imminent, and he goes, actually, I'm going to give you a choice here. You can live, or I can kill you. What do you choose? Like, would, would that be a dilemma for you? Come on now. I know for me, it would not be a dilemma. I would run towards life like like Rose did the door of the Titanic, right? I would, I would sprint, to, we would all, we would all sprint towards life faster than Usain Bolt. There would be no dilemma. We would want to live. We want more time with our family. I want more time with my kids. I, I want more time to, to travel and adventure. Actually, actually, I've had enough travel. I don't want to travel anymore. But maybe whatever it is for you, we all would choose life. It wouldn't be a dilemma for us. And let me be clear and compassionate. That wouldn't be wrong. I'm not... This is not binary. I'm not talking about some, some yes, no, black and white. Like, it wouldn't be wrong to desire life. Life is a gift from God. Life is something he's given us to be enjoyed unto his glory forever. Paul desired life, right? He's, he's hard-pressed, right? He's not some spiritual masochist going, I just want to die. No, he's, he's like, I like life. I enjoy life. I, I want to continue to live. I'm hard-pressed. That's a good option for me. But where we deviate from the apostle Paul is that there would be no dilemma. We wouldn't be that hard-pressed. And here's why. The reason we don't share Paul's dilemma is because we just don't share Paul's desire. I am going to step on your toes this morning. Okay. The reason we don't share Paul's dilemma is because we don't share Paul's desire. So what was his desire? Look at verse 23. I'm hard-pressed. Here, here's my dilemma. I'm hard-pressed between these two options. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Church, Paul's dilemma was existent because Paul's desire was to be with Christ. Consequently, our dilemma is non-existent. Right? Not you're good Christians, you know, not because you don't want to be with Christ. You just want the things of this world more, right? Like Paul's dilemma existed because he desired to be with Christ. Our dilemma would not exist because we just like life more than we like being with Christ. I think that's why we can't say what Paul says. We desire our spouses more, our, our kids more, our homes more, our careers more, our possessions more. Sure, we desire Christ 
in due time. We just want earthly things more now. But, but listen to what Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote. He says, it is only as heaven grows in us that the less of earth will content us. It's only as heaven grows in us, the less of earth contents us. Paul, Paul is in agony. He's really weighing the options. And, and he says, listen, my desire, that, that word desire is the same word he uses throughout his epistles in, in a negative sense as lust. It's the same word as lust. Y'all, don't, don't let that slip past you. Paul's saying the deepest longing and craving of my life is to depart and be with Christ. And I don't want us to mistake Paul here. He doesn't want to depart um, to escape. Right? He's, not, he's not falling prey to some form of escapism. I, I do this a lot. Right? Maybe it's the suffering that I'm walking through or the suffering that I'm observing so many of you walking through. And, and that suffering, it, it makes me yearn for heaven. Right? It just makes me yearn when one day this agony will be over, like when this pain will be over, when the suffering will be over. There'll be no tears. There'll be no Swifties, you know, or whatever that looks like. And we yearn for that. But that's not what Paul's saying. Do you see that? Paul's not going, I'm, I'm just tired of hurting. He's not saying, I want heaven because I just want release. His hope is not reprieve. His hope is full possession of Christ. His desire is driven by a desire to want Jesus, not to escape, but to be with Jesus, to have full possession of Jesus, to savor Christ to the full, to finally step into a whole intimate relationship with the Lord. Can you imagine to see him, talk to him, and enjoy him, to be sourced by his strength, to be comforted by Christ's own compassion? to be encouraged by his teachings. I mean, to have the Prince of Peace in replace of anxiety, to be shepherded by the shepherd, loved by the beloved, counseled by the great counselor. You fill in the blank. All of that will be fully available to you when you get to see Christ face to face. And that was Paul's desire. He just wanted to be with Christ. He, he wanted to savor the Savior. Church, we, we got we to gotta put these like fanciful, Hollywood-contrived images of heaven to bed. Right, like when we talk about heaven, like what comes into your mind? Some version, I'm going to guess, some version of little cupids, you know, I don't know where that came from. Uh, you know, some, some version of a ongoing choir practice. That's not scriptural. It, it's not biblical, because let me ask you one question. In your picture of heaven, where is Christ? Do you think? When you go, I'm ready to get to heaven, is it because you want to see Jesus? Paul goes, I, I don't care about heaven. I just, want where Christ, I just want to be where Christ is. So if heaven is where Christ is, that's where I want to be. Paul says, my desire is to depart, not to get somewhere, but to be with somebody. Christ must define our picture of heaven. If Christ isn't there, I don't want any part of it. Paul didn't want any part of it. Paul's desire was to depart so that he could be with Christ. Paul had known, if you read Paul's writings, Paul had known vividly a relationship with Jesus. But what he was longing for was something more full, uh, something more permanent. How many of you have ever dated long distance? I've done the long distance thing. Or maybe you're married and your spouse has a career to where you've been distanced. Where are our military families? Come on, okay? You know that long distance thing. How awesome is that? And if you answered affirmatively, 
Um, you can email me. We'll meet, discuss that. Okay. No, it's the worst. It's, it's horrible. It, why? Because long distance can never substitute for the real thing. It never can. And, and Paul's going, I'm just tired of the long distance thing, Lord. I'm ready. I'm just ready to be at home. I'm ready for something permanent. I'm ready for the real thing. And when he thinks about that option, when, when Paul thinks about departing, when he thinks about being with Christ, you know what he says in, in verse 23? He says, oh man, that, that's far better. It's a, in the Greek, it's like a double superlative. It's like, that's the mostest bestest. He's like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just, it's far, far better. Paul's desire was to depart, would be with Christ. That's what drove his dilemma. But let me say a couple quick words about this concept of departing. The Greek word for departing is often used in, in tent making. And maybe Paul's career as a tent maker aided him in this illustration. He says depart is, is like when Paul, as a tent maker, would go into a city, which is a temporary job, right? And he would, he would build tents for people, and he would set up his own tent, and he would live temporarily. But when he exhausted the clientele of a singular city, he would then pack up tent and move on to the next. Paul says, that, that's what I want you to think of. It's just packing up tent. I'm just ready to move on to something permanent. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 Paul says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a permanent building from God, a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. Paul said, I'm ready to depart. I'm ready to pack up camp one last time. The same word departing is also used in nautical terms. It's like a weighing of an anchor or, or setting of a sail, right? If you were a maritime merchant and, and you crossed the ocean, you would, you would dock and you would conduct all of your business. But once your business was done, you would get back on boat, you would weigh that anchor, you would set that sail, and you would begin to move towards the shores of home. Paul goes, that's what I'm, letting, I'm longing for. I'm ready to, I'm ready to pull up anchor. I'm, I'm ready for the sails to be set. I'm ready to go home. What a beautiful description of a Christian's death. It's just a homecoming. It's a homecoming. But let me step on more toes for a minute uh, and address a, a little bit of confusion about departing. When, when the boat of your life, as a Christian, I'm speaking to the believer, when, when the boat of a Christian's life departs, it does not meander in the oceans called purgatory. That's just not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that your life immediately arrives to the shores of heaven's home. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 says, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Insinuating that as soon as you are away from the body, you are then at home with the Lord. When Jesus looked at the criminal on the cross next to him, he says, hey, today you will see me in paradise. Not like in a couple years. Today you will see me in paradise. To, to depart is to immediately be with Christ. Now, when it comes to end times theology, I believe that the resurrection of our physical bodies will take place at Christ's return. But in terms of our spirit, our souls will immediately be present with Christ. And that was Paul's desire. That was Paul's desire to be immediately present with Christ. As I conclude this point, um, I want to read from you a letter written by Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry was a pastor and Bible commentator. And he wrote this letter to be read after his death. All right, so you following with me? Like he wrote the letter while he was alive. After his death, he wanted his family to read this letter, and this is what it said. It said, family, would you like to know where I am? I'm at home in my father's house, in the mansions prepared for me here. I'm where I've always wanted to be. God, that, that chokes me up. I'm no longer on the stormy sea. I, I'm in God's safe and quiet harbor. My sowing time is done, and I am reaping. My joy is as the joy of harvest. Would you like to know what I'm doing? I'm seeing God. 
not as through a glass darkly, but face to face. I'm engaged in the sweet enjoyment of my precious Redeemer. Would you know what company I keep? It's better than the best of earth. And would you like to know how long this will continue? Oh, it's a dawn that never fades. Therefore, weep not for me. What a beautiful, beautiful longing as a Christian. Paul's dilemma, y'all, was exasperated by his desire. And I just wonder if the reason it's not a dilemma for us is because we don't share the same desire. Church, I just pray, as Thomas Watson said, I pray that heaven gets more and more in you so that the earth will content less and less of you. So we have Paul's dilemma, driven by Paul's desire, but now let's turn our attention to Paul's decision. Because ultimately, Paul's personal desire is going to come second to Paul's pastoral responsibility. It, it blows my mind. Let's read Philippians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. What changed for Paul in, in writing this? Right, if you, if you read a couple verses earlier, he's like, man, yeah, I can't, I can't wait to die. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm longing for the homecoming. I'm ready to see Christ. I'm ready to have Christ. Like, like Paul, earlier in this text, was, was really wrestling between the two options, didn't really know what his fate was, was going to be. And yet here in 24 and 25, he goes, I'm convinced I'm going to live. Like, what happened in three verses? Right? Did he receive some kind of prophetic illumination that we're unaware of? Did he get words, some insider information about maybe a favorable judge towards his case? The answer is, we don't know. What, what led to Paul's confidence that he would remain? We don't know. And he did. He ended up being released. This is not the imprisonment that he was martyred in. He was later martyred, but he was released. What led to that confidence? I, I don't know. I have a theory. Okay? So I need to make it clear. I don't know, but I have a theory. So just follow this, this reasoning here. What was Paul's singular, all-consuming passion? To honor Jesus, Right? To live in such a way that Christ would be honored, that Christ would be enhanced, that Christ would be enlarged, that Christ would be magnified. So I think Paul sitting in prison going, am I going to live or I'm going to die? You know what? I think I'm going to live. Because if I live, Christ will be honored more. If I live, that gives me more opportunity to make him famous, to enlarge him, to magnify him, to live unto his glory. I think Paul's confidence in living came from the fact I'm going to get, have an opportunity to keep magnifying him. So I think he reasons, I'm, I'm going to live. And, and living for Paul meant, verse 22, fruitful labor. Paul says, if I keep on living, if I live in the flesh, what that means for me is fruitful labor. Don't miss this. Life for Paul meant fruitful labor for Christ. Life for you means what? Right? We've got to, be able to, we've got to be able to fill in the blank there. And honestly, honestly try to fill in the blank. Life for Paul meant fruitful labor for Paul. Now, earlier I said that if we were in the same dilemma, same dilemma, we had the choice, we could choose life or choose death, what would we do? We'd be like Rose, real selfish, run towards life. Right? Without hesitation, we would all move towards life. And what I told you is that that's not wrong. Life is not a bad thing. Life is to be desired. But listen very carefully. Life for the Christian should not be desired or yearned for just to spend it on yourselves. Did you catch that? Life for Paul meant life for Christ. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for us? So many times we want to sprint towards life because we haven't built our dream home yet. You're, I don't see it in there. 
Your dream home is not going to make it. Life for us means fruitful labor for Christ. Church, we, like Paul, are commanded to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to, to, uh, all, to observe all that Christ has commanded. All of us. Right? That's not the great suggestion. It's called the Great Commission. Matthew chapter, what is that, 28? 18 through 20. Okay. We're all commanded to make disciples. We, we, like Paul, have all been crucified with Christ. If you say you're a Christian, that means you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live. And the life that you now live in the flesh should be lived by faith in the Son of God, not for yourself. We, like Paul, are to place our bodies on the altar of worship as a living sacrifice. That's Romans 12. We, like Paul, are God's own possessions. This is from Peter. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We, like Paul, are to live the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's 1 Peter 4. We, like Paul, Ephesians 2, are to God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he, he prepared beforehand, right? Are do I need to keep rehearsing scripture? This is who we are as Christians. We are commanded to make disciples. And y'all, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. We're, we're commanded to, to, to be fruitful labor. But if you want, with, with just authenticity and integrity, to say, to me, to live is Christ, then that radical declaration has to be backed up by a radical commitment to fruitful labor. Right? You can't just get it tattooed on you. We can't get some bumper stickers or keychains to say, well, for me to live is Christ. No, that has to be backed up by a commitment, a radical commitment to fruitful labor. All of us. And notice that I said fruitful labor. It's not fruitful fun. Y'all, making Jesus known and discipling others is not going to fit into your schedule. It is inconvenient. You know how many times I go to a grocery store and the only wish to not see anybody. You, I stand up in front of people, but you don't know how introverted I am. It is never convenient when someone has a question about Jesus. It's never convenient when someone wants to talk. It's never going to fit into a schedule. It's never going to be comfortable to meet someone's need in Christ. It is going to cost you. It's labor. It's labor. But if you can start to lose your life for his sake, you will begin to taste a fullness of life you didn't even think was possible. I promise you. You step into that inconvenience, you, you start getting uncomfortable for the sake of Jesus Christ, you will begin to experience the comforter in a way you didn't think was possible. Let me explain it. I, I witnessed this in one of my teammates when we were cross-cultural missionaries in South Asia. He, he had met a young man, he's probably 24 years old, from a people group of 55 million people. All right, so if you don't know what people groups are, these are people who have probably never heard the name of Jesus, never heard the gospel. There's a group of people in South Asia, 55 million strong, according to joshuaproject.net, we're 0.00% Christian. Not a known Christian among these people group. Well, our teammate had befriended one of this, this 24-year-old boy from uh, this people group and had begun sharing his faith with him. They were reading the Bible. This young man's asking questions. He's answering his questions. He's faithfully praying for him. I mean, this is going on for months and months and months. And finally, he turns and he puts his faith in the Lord. One out of 55 million becomes a Christian. You know what scripture they were reading when it took place? The Ten Commandments. No Ephesians hadn't even made it to the New Testament yet. He knew this is the Word of God. Something's going on inside of me. What must I do to be saved? Puts his faith in the Lord, okay? Later that night, I'm debriefing with our teammate going, how do you feel? 
Y'all, he's visibly shaking. He's like overwhelmed with energy, and he says, I just want to worship. That's his response. He's like, I just want to worship. He was so full of joy. He says, I've never felt so much joy. I've never felt so much gratitude that is only available to us when we enter into fruitful labor for Jesus. It's available. It's just going to cost you yourself. But once you step into it, you'll find a life you didn't even think was possible, y'all. Fruitful labor. So, so what is fruitful labor? Let me, wow, quickly answer that, okay? Fruitful labor is simply put twofold. And Southern Baptist in me, I'm going to continue with my alliteration. Hope you remember this, okay? The first is declaring. Fruitful labor is, is simply declaring. It's, it's opening up your mouth and it's declaring the goodness and the salvation of our God. It's declaring. We are Christ's ambassadors. This is 2 Corinthians 5. We are Christ's ambassadors. God makes his appeal through us. So we are to implore or declare to others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's our calling. We have to declare. We have to, but in our declaration, we need to understand that it is not our declaration that saves anybody. It is the word of God. It is the gospel seed. It is the power of God. The word is the power of God, not your eloquence, not your ability to have all the right answers for all the inevitable questions that will come. It is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon the word of God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, You were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the abiding word of God. Colossians chapter 1 says, Of this hope, Colossians, you have heard about it in the word of truth. You heard about it in the gospel. It's come to you, as indeed it's going out into the whole world, and it's bearing fruit and increasing. It is the word of God that bears fruit. I don't know about you, man, but I'm, I have a seminary degree, and yet I am still so afraid of messing up, so afraid of saying the wrong thing, so afraid of not having the right answers. Church, we cannot let our fear of failure or our fear of man be above our fear of God. And obeying what he's called us to do, which is opening up our mouths and declaring the word of truth. But if you can, like a child, just go, I trust the word of God to do its work. And you start declaring, you'll see the fruit of the gospel grow in other people's lives. It's never going to return void. It, it is the power to save. And just a little like pro tip here. If you are nervous about declaring in the gospel, start with your testimony. It's hard for people to argue when you say, well, my experience has been fill in the blank. In fact... In our postmodern age, that'll get you applauded, right? If you go, well, my experience, they'll be like, great for you. Your truth is your truth, you know? And just keep going. Just keep sharing about what Christ has done for you, what he means for you, how he's changed your life, how he's changed your family's life. And those are seeds of the word of God that will plant themselves in the lives of others. So if you're scared, start with your testimony. So fruitful labor is declaring. Secondly, fruitful labor is discipleship. Disciple is the Greek word that means learner. A, a disciple is someone that learns. Right? And, and when Jesus called his disciples, that's exactly what he was calling them to, to be learners. He says, come and follow me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So disciple just means to be a learner of Jesus, to be a learner of who he is and what he's called us to and what he's taught and how we can observe that and follow that. Now, we need to be clear, making disciples is not teaching people to be learners of me. Right? When you make disciples of other people, you're not asking them to be learners of you. They will learn about Christ through you. We're called to make disciples by teaching others to, to follow Jesus. So when we're commanded to make disciples, we're to assist other believers in their followership of Christ. And this is what Paul meant in verse 25. He says, I'm convinced. I know that I'm going to remain and continue with you all 
for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul's saying, my task is unfinished. I'm going to remain so that you can progress in your faith. That's all discipleship is, helping others progress in their faith, helping others understand and, and mature in their understanding of Christ, helping others live according to the Spirit, helping others by praying for them, which is what we discussed last week, helping others reflect Jesus. You know, but what really strikes me here is verse 24, and I'll start to land this plane. But in verse 24, he says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. What? That, that struck me this week. And I began to wrestle with this question for myself personally. To, to whom is it more necessary that I remain? Who, to whom is it more necessary that you live? Paul's saying it's, it's, it's necessary that I live because the Philippian church needs me. They, they need me to help them learn to follow Jesus. Who can say the same for you? Who needs you? Right? And I'm not talking about you need to live because they're financially dependent upon you. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are spiritually dependent upon you. God puts us in, in relationship with people all the time. We cross paths with people all the time who need us to live as Christ, to help people progress in their faith. And, and just... You know I was probably going to say this, but if you're a parent in the room, your answer is, is at least immediately obvious. God has given you your children not to just teach them how to work and make their bed and, and be great quality citizens, but to be citizens of heaven. They need help. You have to help them. It's, it's necessary. You as a father, as a mother, help your child follow Jesus. To live as Christ, y'all, it's a radical statement, but it has to be backed up by a radical commitment to disciple making. As one commentator wrote, he says, heaven becomes a passion for us only when the earth is stripped of her glamour. Right? It's true. Heaven becomes a passion for us only when the earth is stripped of her is glamour and the earth is put in proper perspective. Well, what's the proper perspective of earth? Commentator says it's a battlefield upon which the eternal souls of men and women are fought for, upon which the eternal souls of your children, of the 190 children that come into this building every Sunday, there's a, there's a battlefield for the, etern, the eternality of their souls. That's what earth is. So listen, Christian, if you live, you're a soldier. And if you die, gain. Sweet, sweet victory. That's the proper perspective. But, but as I close, and I, have, I promise you I will close at some point today, I feel the need to make a, a quick final point. Okay? Paul is writing the book of Philippians probably in his upper 50s probably 57 or 58 years old if, if you try to do the math. And at this point, he's at least been on two missionary journeys. And at this point, he, has, he has, really has a laundry list of suffering because of his fruitful labor. I, I'm going to read you this laundry list of what Paul had endured as part of his fruitful labor. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he, he says, let me go ahead for a minute and talk like a madman. He says, for far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received the lashes of 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from all those things, the daily anxiety I have for the church. Y'all, I think we can all agree that at the time of writing this, Paul had labored. Right? I mean, labored fruitfully, faithfully. 
So, if there is anybody that I can think of who deserved what we call retirement, I believe it was the Apostle Paul. Right? To just head to the timeshare on Tarsus, throw his legs up and just kind of cruise on in. Right? Paul didn't do that. And, and prayerfully, church, you wouldn't either. You see, the idea that, that when a Christian finally reaches a point where you don't have to work and where you're free to solely live for yourself and for your pleasure, that is contrary to Scripture. Now, hear me. I, I'm not saying you don't enjoy life. I, I haven't had an ounce of silence in 10 years. I crave that day. And, and I know you're going to come up to me and you go, you're going to hate that it's over. I get it. Okay, let me live my life. There's space to, to, to enjoy what retirement can afford, but your time in the service of Jesus Christ is not over. It's not until you depart. It's not until you see him face to face. So if you're in that camp, I, I, know, I know you may not be able to serve him or declare him or disciple others the way that you used to, but, but I just want to invite you to pray. Pray now, God, how can you use me in this season? How can I serve you? Because for me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Well, that wraps up a, a beautiful, beautiful piece of text for us. And I can't think of a better way for us to wrap it up by taking communion together. Um, so if, if you're serving communion or on our communion team, if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and grabbing those. And, and you can even start handing out those elements. Um, I want to remind all of us that communion is a sacrament of the church. And it's reserved for the believer in Christ. So if you're not a Christian, I just want to kindly ask you to let the elements pass you by. But I, I want, as the elements pass and as Justin plays for us, I want you to hear me out. I'm not done talking. You thought you had enough of me. Okay, just hear me out for just a second. Two weeks ago, I said that to live is Christ and to die is gain begins with a personal encounter and a personal response to grace, right? You remember that? Two weeks ago, to live is Christ begins with a personal encounter with grace. And, and, and that happened for Paul. That was true for Paul. Paul met Jesus and was radically changed. You guys can go ahead and start handing out. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is that when you meet it, when you hear it, when you understand it, when you receive it by faith, it'll radically change things. But what I'm aware of this morning is that many of you have never responded to the gospel. That, that probably many of you don't have Paul's outlook on life. That to you, to live is probably somewhat selfish. Or to you, to live is probably somewhat meaningless. For some of you, maybe, maybe death is scary. Right? If you don't have Christ, it, it should be. For many of you, death is to be avoided. It carries some kind of hopeless finality. But I want to tell you, if that's you, it can all change for you today. The grace of God is available to you in the person of Jesus Christ, who came and humbled himself and died the death that we all deserved, paying the penalty for your sins. But after three days, that death rate was broken. And he rose again so that now he is imputing his life to us. Life that we can have today, life that we can experience for all of eternity. All you have to do is to go, I am tired of being the Lord of my own life. I'm ready to make Christ Lord of my life. Give it to Jesus. It changed Paul's life. It changed my life. It'll change your life too. So take these elements, reflect on the good news that they represent, and I'll come back up in just a moment and lead us through taking it together.
whole wall between us and the kids and it's insufficient. Um, bear with me for about 30 more seconds. They're going to hate that I'm doing this, but there's a couple in our church in this service that, let's just say they've been married for a little bit longer than I've been alive. They've walked through some suffering of late and um, every Sunday they approach me and they just go, I just wish we could hold babies the way that we used to. I just wish we could serve the way that we used to. I just, and we just feel so bad. We come in here and we consume and we don't serve. But then she looks at me every Sunday and says, but we also just want you to know we pray for you about three times a day. You know, it's just, just because you're, you're coming to the finish line of life and you can't do some things that you used to be able to do, man, that, I tell you, I can't, I can't explain to you what that means to me. I can't explain what that does for our kingdom, for this church, to have people like that in this service, in this church, who are going, I'm going to sprint to the finish. I'm going to do it on my knees. I'm going to do it praying. So I know you guys know who I'm talking about, but I just wanted to, just wanted to share that. that was on my heart. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, it says, As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're actually proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. What, he, what he's saying is that these are visible representations of the gospel. That when we take this bread, we remember Christ who died for us. When we take this cup, we remember his blood that was shed for us. So let me read what Paul writes here. He says, I do receive from the Lord what I've also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the bread. In the same way, he took the cup after supper. And he said, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the cup. Why don't you stand up with me? I appreciate the way we were able to just preach the gospel there with communion. Let me pray for us, and our team will come back up and lead us through a song of response. Father, we're so grateful uh, just to be a part of your church, to be a part of your family, to be adopted, to call you Father, to be your sons, to be your daughters, to be brothers and sisters, one of another. Thankful, Lord, for all of the people in my life who have helped me progress in the faith for all of those who have declared and all of those who have discipled. I, I pray that we, as a church, would continue to progress in such a way that we become disciple makers. Would you infuse some, some new life into our people that even today, as, as people gather around the Super Bowl, would we keep our eyes open for opportunities to make you famous, to honor you, to enhance you, to enlarge you, to open up our mouths, to share our testimony, to invite to church, whatever that looks like. May we live our lives for Christ, backed up by a radical commitment to fruitful labor. And then, as we can honestly say, to live is Christ, then we can authentically say, then die is my gain. May heaven get in us more and more so that the earth would content less and less of us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.